You are listening to From Sobriety to Recovery with Jesse Mogul. Let's get to the show. Welcome back to From Sobriety to Recovery. I am your host, Jesse Mogul, and I am in addiction recovery. Today, I have an amazing guest for you. He is the host of The Alcoholic Entrepreneur. He's got three and a half years sober. He is a varsity coach. He's a real estate investor. He's just an amazing gentleman. I've already had an opportunity to be on his show. And you guys know, I love bringing you other people out there doing amazing things in the sobriety and recovery community. Normally, I do like a three to five minute yammering on about my life, but not today because I want to maximize my time with Justin Balloonsat. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Jesse. I appreciate you inviting me on here. Uh, I know we had a great conversation last week, so I'm looking forward to uh, to being on your show and chopping it up a little bit more. Yeah, you know, the best thing about doing other people's podcasts and having you guys come on is just the in-depth version of each other's stories that we end up getting to have. And you got to hear mine and your listeners and know mine now. And my listeners obviously know mine because we're 80 some shows in, but they don't know yours. And, and so you don't have to stick with too much of the of the horribleness that was addiction because this show is really about the uplifting part you created afterwards. But everybody loves a good, you know, drama at the beginning to really lock them in. So tell us about what it was like for you back when you were in your addiction cycle. Yeah. So my addiction cycle, <clears throat> excuse me, probably started about 15 years ago. Um, but if I look back now, I can see that it was only a matter of time probably before I got addicted to something that would potentially hurt me. And I say that, uh, and I can only say that now looking back in hindsight, when you're in the throes of it, you don't necessarily see that. But uh, so it was about 15 years ago, I started uh, my corporate career out of college. I went to Western Washington University. I'm from the Seattle area originally. Uh, but I went, I ended up in Hawaii after school and in, in the hospitality industry. And I was running food and bussing tables at the pool at a, on a beautiful island in Hawaii. And uh, really, my my work ethic stuck out quite a bit there because of just the, the, the overall nature of, of being on an island and on island time, as they call it. Yeah, uh, I've lived in the Bahamas. I know all about the island time philosophy. Right. I do not enjoy it. <laughs> no, no, especially from, you know, from if you're from the mainland originally, you know, it's just done different things are done. The culture is different. So nonetheless, I, I, I moved up very quickly and I was a supervisor probably within six months. Uh, and then I transferred from there to, uh, the Sheridan, New York in times square, Manhattan. Uh, so that was a big culture shock. There was a big, there was a lot of change there. And with routine change for me comes a little bit of depression, anxiety, things along that uh, line. And so when I moved to New York City and I got into, first of all, New York City was the first city I've ever lived in. So that oh is, boy. that's a big city to take a bite out of um, for your first metropolitan area. So there was just so much in my life going on. I was living in Hoboken. I had a girlfriend at the time who was from the area I had a new job in a city I didn't know. I was learning how to commute 
publicly, uh, I was, you know, it, it, my whole life was just turned upside down. And, and what I distinctly remember from one of my very first days on the job was I went, I went down into a basement office uh, with my boss, my, my boss at the time, just to meet some of the team and, and some of the team members. And uh, there, this was a director of a department in the hotel. Uh, we head down to the basement of the hotel and into his office. And my very first memory working in New York City was this guy, probably in his mid-50s, sitting across a desk from me, smoking a cigarette and drinking a glass of Grey Goose on the rocks with a bottle on his desk at work. And this is me, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, from that memory on, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be the biggest swinging dick in there that I could, I could, I could smoke a cigarette and drink vodka in the morning if I wanted to. And even the people around me wouldn't say anything and that would be okay. And so that kind of set the stage for me. That set the stage for me. And I proceeded to, to just get a very bad drinking habit, you know, with, uh, as I kind of grew and climbed the corporate ladder, I got keys to the liquor cage. I did inventories. Uh, you know, I had great relationships with, uh, servers and bartenders that, you know, benefited me. And, and it was just insidious. It was, it ended up at the end, just daily, not just, not even daily drinking. It was morning drinking. It was Mm -hmm. waking up to have a drink because I couldn't function. I didn't feel right. And it was more than a hangover. It was, I just, I just didn't feel like me. So the drinking got to a point where I wasn't drinking to get drunk anymore. I was drinking to get normal. I was drinking, you know, I was, my tolerance was so high because I was drinking a pint of Hennessy or a pint of bourbon before I get out of the shower, it's down, you know? And, and so, and then by the time I get to work, I, you know, I'm, I'm immediately ground running. I'm, you know, I was a bottle of bourbon a day, just about at the end. Um, and so to drink, to feel normal is just a horrendous place to be because you have to hide it because you don't want the same liquor store. People thinking you got an issue, like all these crazy thoughts are going through your mind. But the craziest one is that you, you feel like you honestly cannot survive without this substance for me. And that was the craziest thing that alcohol, this poison, this legal poison that we have in our society had literally taken over my life. And every decision I made was made around alcohol. When was I getting my next drink? Where was it coming from? Did I have to do anything prior to getting that drink so that I could hide any lies that I needed to make up in order to get that drink? You know, it was it was crazy. It was just absolutely crazy. And it, I came to a breaking point as as we all do eventually. If you're addicted to something, you're you're gonna you're gonna come to a breaking point. And a point where you're going to accept where you're at and, and you're willing to die because of that substance, because you, you just don't know where to go. You don't know. You don't have help. You don't have support. You feel shameful. You feel you feel all these things. And I know you felt that just from our, our last interview. I know you've walked that path of 
I don't give a shit if I don't wake up after this. And so it came to that for me. Um, my fiance picked me up in, in Manhattan for the last time, sloop, you know, stumped, slouched over on a, on a stoop um, in the middle of the city. I don't know how she found me or got to, I don't know how I talked to her or called her or whatever, but I did somehow. And she found me. And I just remember waking up at about six o'clock the next morning. Um, it's probably still a little drunk, but, but uh, withdrawing enough from alcohol that I need another drink. So I got that immediately. And then I knew immediately that uh, I had to go. I had to go. And that was what I said to her. I just said, I got to go. When she woke up, I don't remember what happened exactly. But I did spend that day drinking, crying, talking to my parents, talking to my friends, letting them know that I was going to be going because I'd already made that decision. Um, you know, but the funny thing is, is that I was in a place and I, and not many, I don't know how many people actually know this about alcohol, but there's, there's two drugs really that will kill you if you withdraw from them uh, too hard. Uh, Xanax uh, or, or, the, or something alike and, and alcohol. Mm-hmm. If you are addicted to those things, either one of those, and both of them together are, are just a deadly combination. But if you, there, you can get to a point with those drugs where your body actually needs them to stay alive. And if you don't give your body that, your body will actually shut down and you will die. Seize, you'll seize out, you'll, you know, there, there's ramifications for it. So I was actually in a place where I needed to drink uh, to function and, and to, to live. To, uh, to live. There's just so much that we, I can, I mean, I just took a whole page of notes just now on here. I love that you brought back the story of your boss drinking, you know, and on the show, I talk a lot about how the easiest social circle to join is the addiction circle. And in the hospitality industry, you all, you know, you want to be cool. You want to be seen, you want to be out and about and heavy drinking and drug use is just, it's par for the course in that industry. And I used to think back when I was in the depths of my serving bartending life in my twenties, I was like, I just was convinced that the only people who lived the way that I did were people in the hospitality industry. And surely anybody who wasn't a bartender or waiter or working in a hotel, whatever it might be, surely they didn't drink the way that we did. Now, of course, now that I'm sober and I pull my head out of my ass, I realize tons of people have addiction issues and they have nothing to do with the hospitality industry. But for yours and for mine, maybe I work in a hotel, you know, intermittently now with the pandemic. And I still see so many people that are living that day to day. Can I just make it through? And for you to see a boss, and I remember I had a boss and I remember going in the office one time. He's like, hey, I need to talk to you in the office. And I thought I'd done something wrong. He just had to find out that I was a Coke dealer and he had a bunch of blow. And so we went in the office and started doing lines off the desk. And this set the stage for like the next three years of my, of my life at this job where it was just us doing constant amounts of drugs and me thinking, well, He's the GM. So if he's the GM of this major restaurant making 250000 a year, I mean, my future doesn't look too shabby. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Right. And so you see that. And so you start to search for it and you actually got it. I mean, you became the head of F&B. You, you got what you wanted out of this entire thing and it almost killed you. So smart for you to realize that this isn't the way that your life could go. But not many, not many people have that where they just wake up and say, that's it. It's done. This sounds like, you know. I love knowing how many times you said no more, how many times you looked in the mirror and said, I can't do this anymore. You woke up at 6 a.m. after passing out in the city to your, you know, your, and then you drank the rest of the day, but you'd already made that decision. Let's talk a little bit about that whole process of making that decision. Yeah. So, you know, if I look back on my life, I got a DUI at 19. 
Um, and I was forced to go to AA and forced to go to out, outpatient treatment by the court. Um, and then um, when I got to the city, you know, I, I knew that I was, I knew I was, I knew I had an issue, but I, I just hadn't accepted it yet. I hadn't looked at it. Everyone else was doing it around me. But about four to six months before I, I actually quit, I emailed Devin, my fiance, and I said, I basically said, like, I'm, I'm having a hell of a time right now controlling some demons in my life. And I don't know what to do. And I don't know where it's going to go. I'm, tr- I'm really, really trying. But I just can't stay off the bottle. And so I knew it was coming. And, and I tried. You know, I just... all. I have a ton of friends from high school, really great friends, and a majority of them went to treatment eventually somewhere down the line for some sort of substance. And I kind of hung my hat on the fact that I didn't, that I was one of my friends who didn't go to treatment. Um, But I experimented with all the same drugs. I did, you know, I drank with them. I drank with the best of them, you know, but, but seemingly had my shit together and didn't have to go to treatment. So to get to to get to a place, especially me, somebody who just, you know, I, I see myself as a leader of my friends and I, I see myself as just kind of glue to, to us a little bit. And and it was really hard to say, like, you know, I've been living a lie and, and I got this huge secret and I got to take care of it. And I have no idea what this means for you or me or our friendship or where, you know, what happens. But I just know I got to go away. So, uh, you know, so, so it was a long time coming for me. And I think luckily for me, I was, I was self-reflective enough to see it, even though I didn't want to see it and I didn't want to do it. And I tried my very best to not get help and to try to do it on my own to save face. Uh, but I just couldn't for me, I just couldn't, you know, it was, and it, I had sh- I had shaken everything else, you know. I'd gone through my coke phase and a meth phase and a shrooms phase and a you know weed phase and a uh, you know I I tried it all opiate phase and and I eventually got myself out of them, but I did recognize on each one of those drugs there was a point where I said like I really like this feeling, and if I don't. If I, if I don't check myself, this could be a really big problem. Right. And I did do that with those drugs. The, the, the problem with alcohol is that it's just so readily accepted everywhere. Yeah. And so I didn't have this weight on me that, like I did with all the rest of the drugs of, of, of society saying that you can't, you shouldn't do the, you shouldn't do those substances. No, so alcohol stuck and that's what I clung to. And that's what, that was my best friend, my comforter, my lover, my, that was my everything. Uh, Anything went wrong. That was my fixer. And I could at least for a little, a short amount of time escape, right? That's what we want to do. It's hard. We, as addicts, we don't sometimes know how to deal with emotions uh, or things, which is why we sometimes turn to alcohol. So, or, or, or drugs. So you know, for me, again, long time coming for me. I saw it coming. I'm thankful that I was self-reflective enough to see it coming, to at least say it to somebody else in an email so somebody knew um, so that when when the last straw kind of broke, there wasn't a surprise and, and we could kind of move forward quickly. Um, and Devin, the day that I went uh, or the day before I went, 
Um, Devin spent the whole day at work with American Addiction Centers trying to figure out where I, where they could put me. And I ended up going to Las Vegas um, to a place called Desert Hope. And um, I spent about 45 days there total with detox, inpatient, outpatient, uh, and ended up coming home on my on my birthday. I, I don't remember how old I was, 33. That's awesome on your birthday. And, and yeah. in that, you know, I love that when we first told me that you had gone to Vegas for treatment and that's the city I'll be leaving LA for. And people are like, wow, you're going to be a sober coach and a sober speaker and everything else I do. And you're going to do this in Vegas. I'm like, you'd actually be amazed at the amount of sobriety and recovery that goes on in that city because it's so many people go there and get to their depths. You know, if you remember that movie, Leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas Cage either go there to die or you go there to live. And it's one or the other. Right. And, and you made the choice and so many things that you said, cool. And that one, I swear I can just feed off the way you talk and, and I can bring out more topics, phases of addiction. Let's touch upon that because I often saw alcohol as my wife and I saw all the other drugs as my mistress, because generally the alcohol would trigger the other ones wanting to come around. And it was like, if she said, okay, yeah, let's bring in cocaine tonight or let's bring in LSD, then they were allowed to come. But it was always the alcohol. Everything got ran through that first. And it's, you're not the first one I've talked to where it's like, yeah, I somehow was able to kick all these other drugs, but somehow alcohol just always stuck around. And I really think it's the, it's the social norm that is the drinking. In the hospitality world, just like in college where I stayed for 12 years, it's the easiest place for an addict to hide because everyone is behaving that way. So we don't think anything is wrong with the way we're behaving because everybody's been work at two in the morning and going, getting housed until 6am and then doing it all over again. So it was amazing that you were able to pull out of that, you know, and still be in that world and say, okay, this is something has to change. And the fact that you got found and passed out in a city, I think anybody out there listening, I think I know y'all have some crazy stories about where you passed out and where you were found. I've, I've, I've woken up in dumpsters in parks in the middle of nowhere, Belgium. I've blacked out in Indonesia once and woke up in Singapore. It was not normal behavior. <laughs> but you get to thinking that it is right, Justin, like at some point you're just like, yeah, this is just the way that life is. And I'm okay with it because it just becomes, it becomes your new norm. Like you said, you drink to feel normal. You weren't drinking to get buzzed. Yeah, I wasn't drinking to get buzzed. Uh, and at, at first, at first it was, it's fun and it's funny and it's, there's cool stories to tell. Uh, and you're experiencing life in a different way. And, and listen, I don't, there are very, I had a great time drinking. I'm not going to lie. Like I had great time using, I like, I had fun experiences, fun, funny times with my friends. Like it's not all bad. It's, it wasn't all bad. And, um, and I, and I learned a lot of things and I, you know, there's, there's memories in there, funny memories that I'll never forget and cherish with my friends. However, it is, um, I forget where I was going with this. It, it, it is, it, um, what's well, the you're, you know, you're talking about the good times, and I remember so many of those. And, and so often people are like, do you regret the way you behaved? And if anyone noticed the chainsaw in the background right now, apparently people are wanting to cut trees in my property. So I'm moving my entire operation out into the living room. Um, 
you know, I was once told never regret something that you enjoyed immensely. And so I don't look back at what I used to do with a ton of regret, other than the fact that I really think I could have accomplished so much more with my life. But I also think it was my soul's journey to do this with my life. So when you look back at it, I mean, you know, a lot of people are all about, well, what was the reason? What was the purpose for me having to go through this? And so I like to ask this question to my guests, you know, looking back at the way you behaved, can you notice a, a, do you feel that there was a purpose? There was a sense that you had to overcome this tribulation in order to really seek the highest purpose of this version of your soul's life. Yeah, I'll 100% now. Um, and I think I'm just starting to see my purpose. I'm just, I think I'm just scratching the surface of my, of what my purpose is uh, on this planet. But looking back at, I, I wouldn't be able to do the things uh, that I'm doing on and speak on the things that I'm speaking on now, had I not gone through it, you know, it's um, successful people who haven't gone through hurt. Can't, can't talk about it because they haven't experienced it. You know, you have to really experience hurt and struggle uh, and come out the other side to, to really engage with, with an audience who, who also have struggles. So, uh, Sorry, I lost my train of thought again. <laughs> was, um, well, you you were you were touching upon your your journey, right? In the in the right. struggles, in you know, and you're right. I mean, what you've accomplished after the fact, after the addiction, has meant so much, and it's changed lives. And a lot of people who listen to this show are they're sober curious, and they're like, "What is the life that is waiting for me?" On the other side, a lot of people we have fear. It's like not just getting back to a baseline of quote unquote normal, but just like, will life ever be as enjoyable as it was mm-hmm. high as a kite and drunker than hell? And mm-hmm. I, I think it's 10,000 times better. And I've no doubt you do as well. So share some versions of what it is that you've been able to do since you got sober that have shown you like, wow, you know, this is, this is amazing. Other people can't achieve it. Other people should, it sh- should just experience it. So I'm, I'm literally living a life right now that like I dreamt of that people talked about, uh, you know, people that people talked about to me in early recovery when they're, you know, when they kept saying like, it gets better, it gets better. Wait, wait for the miracle to happen. Wait for these things. And even when I wasn't in sobriety yet, you know, I heard people describe the fact that they're living their best life as entrepreneurs and things like that. And I never really heard anybody from a corporate world say that I always heard it from, from, from entrepreneurs. So when I've, when I got sober and it doesn't happen overnight, but when I got sober, the longer I stayed sober, the long, the, the better, how do I say this? The longer I stayed sober, the more clear my mind got, the more clear I got about my actions, the more clear I got about the people that were coming in and out of my life and what their intentions were. And I got to reassess what my goals used to be and were and and still are you know i forgot about all these things when i replaced them with alcohol so i i remember that i still have goals and i still have these things in life that i once thought as a child i was definitely gonna do and somewhere along the line i lost it and so now three and a half years sober i like you said in the intro i coach three sports uh, at a high school I am a real estate investor. I flip houses. I, I buy rentals. 
I also manage events still. My my background is in event management as a director of banquets in the city. So I part-time help at this. It's a beautiful uh, mansion here in New Jersey. So I do that part-time, you know, when they need me or when it fits my schedule. And then I also podcast now. So, and that's just the beginning. That's, and and all of those things. So I started real estate about two years ago. I started podcasting about two months ago. I started coaching about two years ago. Uh, and I started events. I got back into events about a year ago um, because I left due to the sobriety thing. I needed to be comfortable in that environment. Oh, yeah. And so I, I got to a place where I was. Uh, and so now I know, like, I'm here to influence people. I, I know that I'm here to use uh, my, main, my brain, my mind, my, my voice. Uh, to influence people and to affect decisions uh, that people make. I think specifically on young people, I think there's a reason why I'm in, in high school sports. I think that I very easily go back to my days as a high school athlete and think about the things that I needed as a, as a young boy with a dad who was in the Navy and away a lot and a, and a mom who was trying to raise two kids and work herself and just the things that I didn't have from a male figure in my life. Uh, because my mom is great and my mom did a great job at raising my sister and I, but she's not my dad. Mm -hmm. And there's just a difference there. You know, there's just a difference in having a male figure in your life. And he was in my life and he was a very loving, and he still is. He's very, you know, he did the best he could too. He was in the Navy. He couldn't, you know, he had to go when he had to go, but it made it hard. It made it hard on me in my, in my childhood, uh, not having that figure. So it's very important to me right now when I'm coaching my, my athletes to make sure that I'm continuously putting myself back into their shoes and what I needed to hear at that time as I was experimenting with drugs and alcohol, when I was experimenting with sex, when I was trying to understand my sexuality and and really, for me, it was hypersexuality because I was exposed to sex at four, four or five years old uh, because I was sexually assaulted by two babysitters uh, in when I was living in Texas for, I don't know, however long I was there, a year, maybe. No, I was there for longer than that. I don't remember. Um, but I was, and so my... I was exposed to sex very early, and so I knew what it was very early, and then as you can imagine, you start to develop. I, I just knew how shit went really early. And so yeah. my, and, and be a, a huge part, what I've learned is that I, I obviously wasn't able to perform as a four or five year old with, you know, teenage girls that were babysitting me. And so I had, it, I just, and I did not realize this until really recently, the complex that I had of, uh, just not being able to perform and not just sexually, but, but in general, just the need to always want to perform and never fail. Be, and it all stems back from this, from this sexual experience, this encounter that I had with a babysitter who wanted me to perform. And I was just so embarrassed and, and a little kid that I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so she had her, she had another, like a guy, her age actually happened to come over and they went into my parents' room and and they slept together in there. And, you know, and then he came out afterwards and, and I was just this kid and it was, 
just so demoralizing at that moment. Like I couldn't, I wasn't good enough and I couldn't do this thing that I thought I was naturally supposed to be able to do from what the, you know, the pornography and shit that they showed me. Yeah. Uh, but for my entire life, I basically, it caused me to never want to not perform ever again. And it also made me hypersexual and, and not wanting to ever pass up a sexual encounter, if that makes any sense. Because, because, because of the trauma that I felt that day of, of not being able to perform sexually. Right. And so if so, you pass up a opportunity, then you're basically saying I can't perform. So therefore, you know, you know, you're having to go back and relive that. And Justin, the vulnerability you're stepping into right now, I really just think it's, it's just groundbreaking because the suffering that you went through as a young child with the sexual assaults and then not having your dad there. And it's like, now you start to really get at the root of where, like you said, it was inevitable that you became addicted to something. It was just going to be, what were you going to choose? And it sounds like you chose them all. Right. You know? yeah, yeah. And, and in sobriety, and obviously addiction recovery is moving into that healing of the trauma. Do you put a lot of, I mean, where are you putting a lot of that effort to heal the suffering, right? That's the one thing that we all have in common. Our stories sound very similar. Everybody's in addiction and it all roots from suffering. We all have that one thing in common. That's why we sit around in these meetings and we can look around and no matter how many skin colors and religions and sexualities are in the room, we all know that we belong there because we all come from an intense amount of suffering. What are you doing to actively heal yourself? As you, because your sober dates, what what day is your sober date? Before you answer this May, question, May second, twenty seventeen. Seventeen, I think. Yeah, because yeah, mine's January thirteenth. When you said three and a half, I'm like, oh yeah, we are the same year. So you know, so I know where I'm at in this journey, and you now know where you're at. So what is it you're putting together to help heal the suffering? Um. Well, number one, I think. You know, when you start out, you just need to surround yourself with people that are going through similar things that you are. I think you need to just be very basic. You need to surround yourself with people who know, understand you and what you're going through. Maybe not understand you, but understand what you're going through. And that means, you know, sober friends. That means, you know, meetings. There's a ton of different avenues right now. Uh, but once you get past that kind of initial phase of sobriety and you really start to have to do work, it's really therapy. You know, for me, it's it's therapy, it's talking, it's it's work, it's coming to conclusions like the one I just explained about my need to perform and how that affected me growing up, not only sexually, but in everything. I had to be the best at everything. I had to perform at everything. And if I didn't, it really hurt me and it crushed me and I cried and it because and I was also very emotional. And so but it it takes talking about this shit and and trying to piece together these things and having a third party like a therapist there to to listen and to give feedback uh but therapy i think is is the biggest thing i think everybody needs a therapist even if you don't have uh even if you're not struggling with substance abuse or addiction i think you just everyone needs someone to dump their shit on yeah that's not going to carry it, you know, and, and that is not going to care, you know, but we'll listen to you and give you an objective response or advice if you need. Uh, and that's the part right there that you touch on. It's that bipartisan response, right? Like my therapist, she, she just wants me to be, she wants, first and foremost, she just wants me to be sober. 
right? Second, second goal is to see me achieving whatever I say, right? She really is like, first thing I care about is, are you sober today? And she's like, once we've moved past that, everything else you want to talk about now is on the table. If you aren't sober today, now we have to go back and talk about that. But she just, okay, you want to do this? I mean, she's not always been happy with a lot of the decisions I've made, but right. she says, you know, you've got to walk your own your own path. She's, she calls herself a farmer. She plants the seeds. It's up to me to do it, the rest with it. And it sounds like you've got yourself into a therapy situation where that's what's occurring with you too. You get to go share your stuff with someone who's not a family member or a friend who won't know, you know, it's, there's some things you just don't want people who know you to know about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And, and no matter how like confident and convicted you are and what, you know, what you believe, there's still there's still our family and friends out there that, you know, you'll think twice about saying some things too because just the mere fact that they're human and they judge too. So it's definitely good to have a therapist. I have multiple. I have one for myself. I have I have a couple psychiatrists because I'm on a couple of different medications um that help my anxiety, uh, and depression and and it, just a couple other things that that I deal with. So but so they they monitor my meds, but they're also another another therapeutic way uh, for me to talk about what's going on in my life. So I have two psychiatrists. I have a therapist. Uh, Devin and I also do couples therapy. I think that that is super important if you're in a relationship, uh, a committed relationship. Again, I don't think you need substance or addiction issues. I think everybody needs it because there's dynamics within a relationship that Again, you may not want to say, and it, it you know, there are things that you probably shouldn't say to to your significant other that you could say to your therapist, you know, and and that would probably save you a lot of headache. So yeah, you know, having a therapist for Devin and I as a couple to make sure that we're communicating well and you know all the different things, it, and it takes a long time. So it's you, you know be ready for the long haul. You know, this is not something that's going to, this is not a light switch. It doesn't, you don't just turn it on and you're cured. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. as long as it's taking you to build the addiction that, that you have, it's going to take you twice as long probably to unravel all of that and, and to get to a place, to a different place. It won't take long to see a difference yeah. in what you're doing, but it it will take a long time to really have a solid foundation where you will not stumble when tempted then when 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 irritated hungry angry you know all of these things so it it it's going to take some time but it 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 happens and it goes by much quicker than you think you know i blink my eyes and i'm three and a half years i can't even believe it but in that time i mean you know i've Devin and I have almost split up multiple times, you know, our, my communication and my, my temper tantrums and my emotional status is just, it's had to mature and it's had to mature really quick because I left my emotional state as a 14 year old where it was when I decided to cover everything up with drugs and alcohol. So, you know, I'm catching my, I'm I'm catching up my, my brain to the 36 year old man that he should be and acting like. Uh, but it's, it's work. Don't get me wrong. It's work and it's going to take time, but every day, every day you're going to come closer and every day, no matter how hard or difficult it is, you're going to be closer to where you want to be as long as you're not putting substance in your body. 
And then that's the emotional intelligence that I talk about so much on this show. I mean, you just summed it up so beautifully and thank you for that. And I, especially going through team balloon sat and letting people out there know, look, having a therapist, having a coach, having a psychiatrist, have whatever your team needs to look like for you, build that team. No one person's program is going to work for everybody else. And so you have your own and, and, you touched upon earlier about helping these high school kids and really being there for them. And that's the emotional intelligence that so many of us lacked when we were young, right? We had those initial traumas and there's a part of you, Justin, that's stuck at five years old whenever that first sexual assault happened or whatever may have happened at 14 or 11, right? Like we have all these different stages and we come out and now we're in our thirties and society isn't giving us that buffer to get, to catch up, right? Like you said, it wants you you're 44, you're 36. It just expects you to have that emotional intelligence, whatever that is, of that person at that age. But in reality, we're stuck at so many different ages. Now we got to grab a hold of that version of ourselves and bring them up with us. And it's, you know, the beauty of having this team that I, I think everyone should have is that those people understand that you are stuck at five years old or you are stuck at 11 and they're willing to work your way up through that. And then what you're doing for these high school kids and saying, look, we're all doing the best we can with the resources that we currently have. Now let's build better resources. And that's what you're doing for yourself. And then you're taking that knowledge and you're moving it towards those high school kids. And I think that's some of the best work that can be done. Because I think all of us were raised by emotionally immature parents who had emotionally immature parents. And now you're looking at an entire, you know, we're looking at an entire world. Look at the way the world behaves. We are about as emotionally unintelligent. I think elephants and sharks act more emotionally intelligent than we do. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I would agree. And it's 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 a shame that we've gotten to this point, but I think now we're in a place where as a society we can we can see it, point to it and acknowledge it and work towards uh being more present. Being more present every day, uh and and empathetic and sympathetic to to humans, you know. And just I think we need to get back to that human level of just, just humanity, just the basic level of humanity, decency, respect, um, and things like that. And, and stigmas will change and people will start thinking differently. And it's, I love that you just brought up stigma because I hear a lot of people on Instagram, I've, I've talked to a lot of people, uh, and they'll be like, you know, there's a stigma around addiction. And perhaps it's because I live in Los Angeles. And I don't know what it's like you, for you there in Jersey and basically New York City, but I don't feel the stigma that other people do. In fact, I get applauded when I say that I'm sober on stage. And so when I hear that other people have to deal with a stigma, maybe it's because they live in Oklahoma City or Des Moines or Louisville, you know, okay, then let's work on the stigma because the people who are the most in your face about this stigma are probably the ones who are also suffering, right? I find that the people who are most vocal against something tend to have some sort of dark secret for why they actually feel like they're a part of it. Um, and, you know, it, you touched also touched earlier on how this is an entire life journey. And one of my guests said, you know, it's not long-term recovery, it's life-term. Like, this is it. And yeah, you get in that pink cloud and you start to see changes immediately, but like the way you just rattled off all the stuff that you've done, most of that stuff started around that year and a half, two year mark, right? And so that first year and a half, you're just trying to get your body to not feel like death and trying to get your mind to be unclouded. And when you finally did all that, look at the things you created in your life. And then this podcast is amazing. And I know we're going to get you out of here soon. So I want to touch upon... Because um, I, I train and coach so many people to create their own business, to create their own life, because I really think the people I've seen be the most successful in addiction recovery are the ones who go out and actively create 
the life they desire. And you have an entire podcast about people who actively create the life they desire through their career, through their business. And the three most important decisions you make in your life are who you're going to love, where you're going to live, and what are you going to do? So you're covering one of those three in your show. What's that like for you to, to, to be a part of helping other people see that they don't have to be stuck in this cycle of a job they don't like or a relationship they can't stand or, or a self that they hate when they look in the mirror? What is it like to be a part of helping people see the greatness that is inside of them? That's a great question. I'm going to, I'm going to pause for one second because my dog is barking and I want to get him out of the room real quick. All right. Do that. Do that. And and while, while Justin's doing that, I'll chat you guys up, go ahead. He's, he's walking away for a second. And so just to do a quick little uh, review of what he's discussed so far, you know, Justin had lived in Hawaii. He moved to New York city. The addiction really took a stronghold. Now he's there living with his fiance in Jersey. He's created the alcoholic entrepreneur specifically because he wants to, if you go back and look at his guest list, it is just filled with people who are creating an amazing life for themselves. And that's what I really want everyone out there who's listening to this show. And you know, I talk about this all the time, guys. You can create anything you want to create if you're willing to prioritize it. Justin, you're back now. Let's go over like, what is it that got you thinking, you know what, I want to prioritize in my life, helping people see that creating the life that they truly desire is the way to seize the day and really become the best version of themselves. Well, I just I basically thought it was a bunch of bullshit when people said like, I'm living, I'm doing whatever I want to do right now. I thought like you had to be rich. You had to be probably, you know, come from money or just really just a different situation. But I'm living, I'm a living example and a testimony that if you, if you literally prioritize, like you said, and, and, and you're willing to, give up everything for a better life give up literally what you're doing maybe friends maybe family and and start at the bottom again and and start something new with purpose it can happen it happens every day and i understand that first step i understand that first jump of and, and being uncomfortable and 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 starting a new venture and starting at the bottom all over again, especially if you've been in a career for, you know, 10, 20 years, 30 years, whatever, it's never too late. You can do it. Will it be hard? 100 fucking percent. Yeah. You know, <laughs> That's the best be part hard. of it is that it's hard. <laughs> it's going to be hard. Right. But, but that all it is is hard work. Like all it is is hard work. If you think it, it, it it's just hard work. If you just, and if you're, and if it's something you love to do, it won't feel like work. You'll love doing it. Well, let's but, see, well, before you get too far away from the hard work aspect, let's touch upon that because I think it's even harder work to sit in a life that's shitty, that you can't stand. It's like you're you're sitting here and you're like, you look around and you're like, this isn't my beautiful life, my beautiful job. What the hell ever happened? And then you just say, I'm going to stay in it. That's to me, sounds way harder. <laughs> no, it is. It, it is. But we don't see it that way. You know, when you're in it, you see, you feel comfortable. You're all right. Well, you're right. I hate all this stuff, but I have health insurance and I have a salary and, you know, I get, I get benefit, I get certain benefits to other companies. And it's just the comfortability that you're, you're trading that for the life that you really want to live. You know, you're right. You'd rather, when you're in that position, you'd rather just be comfortable where you're at than pushing the limits and pushing your boundaries and pushing to, to the person you're supposed to be. 
becoming the person you're supposed to be it doesn't doesn't happen overnight either. It it takes time to become that person. And and you gotta learn, you know, there's a learning curve, there's a learning process. It doesn't happen overnight. But you gotta you gotta be willing to to do that. You know, you, you gotta get to a point like sobriety where you're like, enough is enough, man. I know I'm more, I know I'm more than this. And all you gotta do, I mean, is do a some very basic math and look at your 401k and ask yourself, is this gonna how much money do you do you live on right now? You know, let's say it's five thousand dollars, right? You live on five thousand dollars a month right now. Now you say you, you, you at 80 years old, you're going to, or at 70 years old, you're going to retire. Say you live for another 20 years after that, right? What's $5,000 times, times that many months, you know, it'll be however many months that it is that you think you'll live 20, 20 more years times 12 months a year, do that math. And, and then look at your 401k and see what you're, what's being put into that thing and see if you're going to have that at, at that very, at that very least, that five thousand dollars that you might be living off of right now—that'd be one point two million dollars for twenty years. You got any? You guys out there got one point two million dollars invested? And and if not right now, if you keep dumping seven percent of your salary and the company keeps meeting you at three and a half or four percent, do that. Do that math until you're, you know, and that doesn't even account for the fact that most of them are mutual funds and stocks that are so volatile. You you have no idea what's going to be there you know, the next, the next year. So again, but all this comes with getting clear in your mind and, and then figuring out like, shit, like, what am I doing here? The first thing I looked at was like, okay, what do I, do I see myself doing this for the rest of my life? No. Okay. Why not? Well, I want to live a certain way. I don't want to be stuck to my cell phone all day long. I don't want to work 16 hours a day. You know, I started doing all these things. And one of those things was, well, what do I want to live on when I retire? What, you know, how much money is that going to be? And I just did the basic math. And like you said, oh, that was just very basic 1.2 million. My 401k after 15 years in hospitality was at like a hundred thousand dollars or something. Yeah. 15 fucking years. And I have a hundred thousand dollars in the bank. I mean, another 15 years and, and maybe I get, maybe, maybe I double that. Maybe I, you know, maybe triple it. But that's still only three hundred thousand dollars, and that's forty-five years worth of work. Now, when people start hearing numbers like this, let's say that they're you know they're at the beginning stages of this entire journey, and they're like, "Oh my god, that's soul crushing! I can't figure that out. Where's the pipe? Where, where's where's the straw? Where's the bottle?" Yeah. You know what? You know it's you know to me, I just like you know one day at a time, right? It's like okay, let's just figure out what we're gonna do to save some money today. But at the same time, yeah, look, guys, don't let that freak you out. I mean, this is. This is what I like to say. Time is going to move forward regardless. You're either going to wake up one day at 70 and need to worry about it then, or you can start figuring this out now at 20, 30, 40, 50, wherever you're at. I'm 44. I still don't have a 401k. Roth IRA. I'm starting it up next year. I'm super pumped for it. Yeah, I, I think that my earning potential is just beginning to show itself. But as soon as the money starts to come in, it's going to be investments. It's going to be think, strategic thinking. And that's really, I mean, I can tell your brain works that way. So when you start, to, when you see people glaze over, they're like, oh my God, he's freaking me out. What is, what would be something that you would tell people to just reel them in and say, it's okay. We can still figure this out. It doesn't even matter if you're 62, we can still figure this out. That everybody comes to that realization. Everybody comes to that point. Um, that makes the change, or, or I guess I should say, once you hear it, you can't unhear it. You know, once if you just did that math in your head real quick, and and you're looking at your 401k, and you realize that that like, shit. Well, I think you're in a blessed place. I think you're in a good place to be when you say, shit. I'm not going to live the life I want to live when I retire if I stay at this company, or if I stay at at where I'm at. 
Um, and so I, you, like you said, you gotta, it's, it's okay because I was there too. And I was at a place where I was glossed over. I had no financial literacy. I had no real estate background. I was a, I was a director of banquets with 15 years of hospitality and, and a really bad drinking habit. I had no idea what real estate was or how to invest or, or how to, uh, any kind of financial literacy. You know, I, I knew nothing, but I knew that I could count on myself. I knew that it was going to be hard and I was going to have to learn a lot and educate myself a lot. And I was going to have to do all the work. I couldn't rely on other people. I couldn't rely on HR to give me their stupid trainings on, on, you know, whatever it was. I had to do the work. I had to go figure out who was going to be in my circle. I had to figure out how I was going to do that, but I put the trust in myself and I had the trust in myself because I was clear. I was clear in my thoughts. I was, I was clear, you know, I, I had, I'd done enough work to be okay with that uncomfortability of, well, shit, now I need to do something that's, that's going to make my life worth living. That's going to leave a legacy and that I'm going to be proud of. And that's, you know, you touched it right there. I mean, what a great way to start wrapping up the show. It's like, we're looking at this way to build a, a legacy, you know, where people walk away from your life saying, wow, that person went through so much and yet look what they were able to do. You know, it doesn't matter what town you live in. It's not too hard to figure out, okay, what is my life going to look like? And so many people get afraid that it won't be fun. They won't laugh as much. They won't enjoy life. And all that enjoyment we thought we were doing in addiction was really just fake. It, it was, it was all just a front. And it, it really, I think that the best enjoyment has come from sobriety and recovery because I know that I'm actually creating the moment that I'm experiencing rather than having alcohol creating it through me. And the, the beauty of going into this world is that you start to see things clear. And it's like, yeah, the, when you first, when I first came out of it and I looked around at my room and I looked around at my life, it was in shambles. But I'll tell you, within a few months, you know, I started to dust things a little bit. I started to clean things a little bit better. And I'm not just saying realistically, but this is metaphorically. All of a sudden, you start to dust out the cobwebs in your brain and you realize, actually, I'm a pretty damn good human and I can figure this stuff out. And I think that's what's so beautiful about what you talk to people about is that you can figure this out. Everybody can figure this out. You just have to be willing to prioritize it over the comfortability that being an alcoholic and a drug addict seems to have brought, right? It's the uncomfortable comfortability versus the comfortable uncomfortability. Justin, you've done such a great job sharing your story and talking about what you're doing. And I love that you're out there finding people creating the best life for themselves. And I want everyone out there who's listening to this, go check out Justin Balloonsat's uh, show. It's the Alcoholic Entrepreneur. I'm telling you, you'll hear more amazing stories. Nothing that we talk about, nothing we have achieved is not within your grasp. Some of you might already think that you're well beyond us. Some of you might think you'll never get to where we're at. This isn't a competition. This is our own addiction recovery journeys. And the best part about it is we get to create our own story now. So let's leave you on this one, Justin. You have this opportunity, right? Like this microphone out of nowhere just all of a sudden gets into everyone's ears on the planet. They don't have to just be an addiction recovery. They are just the entire world. You've got a message. You want them to know your message. What would be the message you would share to the entire world? That's a good question. Uh, I would probably go with um, you. You're you are brought to this earth with a purpose, a good purpose. And. Although 
you may be struggling with some things, maybe in business or maybe in in addiction and and substance. Uh, it's it's not the end. People change. You're not alone. And if you if you're hearing this, understand that that you're loved, right? And you weren't meant to suffer through an addiction or through bad business or through you you weren't made to suffer. Suffer is part of life and that make and it allows you to grow. But you weren't made to live this shameful suffering like you're made to flourish and you're made to be abundant and you're made to grow and commune with people. So when I say you're not alone, it's, it's because, you know, if you feel alone, I, I get it, but we weren't made as human beings. We're, we're made to be social human beings, which means we're made to help one another and we're made to use our unique abilities to help one another. Cause everybody has something unique about them that, that was given as a gift to you to give to the world. We need to figure out what that gift is. We need to figure out how do we cultivate it? How do we get it out? How do, how do we get it out that message out to people? Uh, but first, if you're in addiction, we need to get underneath that addiction. We got to deal with the addiction. And then, and only then can we shine light on on your uniqueness so that your uniqueness can shine a light on others because if we're not using our unique abilities and we're not using our unique gifts we're doing a disservice to the world and to humanity so we got to find our gifts and it takes time you may not find it overnight some people may some people may not some gifts are hard to figure out okay but if 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 you seek if you seek those gifts wholeheartedly you'll find them you'll find them but you got to go with the right intentions you got to go with the right vibration the right you got to be in the right mindset in the right posture to to find them and then to accept what they are when you do find them beautiful i got chills through so much of that <laughs> like rumi says what it, what you are seeking is also seeking you so if you're out there seeking it y'all and you know we've talked about this in the past you know curiosity leads to interest leads to passion leads to purpose and so like justin was talking about just now don't expect everything to just fall into place it, it does take time but the beauty of it is that we're on this journey regardless so might as well be on this journey with a prioritization to discover your purpose and it will it will show itself uh that's a beautiful message you're a beautiful person justin this has been amazing i love it i know we got to get you out of here uh just a fantastic time if anyone just wants to discover everybody wants to discover you let's make it easier for them to do so how do they find you on social media where is your podcast located all that jazz yeah, so you can find the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast on uh, every major podcast provider. Um, it is I'm on Twitter at the Alcoholic On One. It's E N the number one. Um, you can find me at thealcoholicentrepreneur.com. Uh, Facebook and Instagram. It's at the Alcoholic Entrepreneur. And my uh, my real estate company is Just Divine Properties. Uh, where again, we're a, a real estate firm in 
New Jersey right now. So if there's anybody looking for real estate in New Jersey, um, look us up, justdivineproperties.com, justdivineproperties on Instagram and Facebook. And, uh, and yeah, check us out. I'd love, you know, I'd love your feedback. I'd love you to subscribe, download, listen. Uh, I got a handful of episodes up there right now, but they're all super poignant and very intentional. And I hope you guys enjoy them. Yeah, you have a great catalog. Everyone, uh, Instagram will lead you there. He's got a great link tree where you can get a hold of his Twitter, all of his websites. I was on there recently just making sure it was easy for me to discover you, and it was, and therefore it will be easy just as much for everybody else. Justin, you're you're amazing. Everybody go check out the at, out the, at the Alcoholic Entrepreneur on Instagram. I'll be putting links in the show notes too to make sure that you guys can find it. Of course, I'll be posting it on my stories and on my Instagram as well, at From Sobriety to Recovery. Justin, it's been an amazing journey with you these last couple of shows that we've done. I look forward to keeping connection with you, man. 100%, 100%, man. And I I love what you're doing too. And I love that there's more than just me uh, out there doing it. And, and if you're an entrepreneur and you're sober and you're hearing this, man, and you got something to say, create, you know, create. Now's no better time than now to, to start creating, especially when you're, when you're stuck at home or working virtually, you got a lot of, you got a lot of time, man. Create, so create, much. create, 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 create. When you're done, hell, not even done creating while you're in the process of creating contact, Justin, he has a show that is literally about sober people creating, go be a part of it. Hit me up, be a part of it. Hell, I'll introduce you to Justin. If you don't know how to find him after all the things we just said, Dude, you're, you're amazing. We will definitely be talking again in the future. We'll definitely have a check-in here next year in 2021 to see how our creations are going. Be amazing. Be blessed. Just be everything that you are. And thank you for spreading your word and, and just making this community as vibrant as it is. Absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity to be on your show. I hope uh, I hope I did it justice. Oh, you absolutely did. And that's it, everybody. I have to say goodbye to Justin, his, his amazing smiling face. It's been a great time with you guys on this journey. As always, inclusivity over exclusivity. This is the day before the national election. So if you're listening to this in the archives, then you will have already experienced this. But this will be out Tuesday morning, the day of the election. Go out there, have your voice be heard, be a part of something amazing. As always, inclusivity over exclusivity, the power of positive energy, release and let your life flow. We'll see you again next week, everybody. Bye-bye.